Thank you, Greg, and those that serve with him to lead us in worship. Thank you so much for being so faithful to us. And thank you for those that help serve on such a regular basis, week in, week out. We are so grateful um, for you to be um, doing what you do so this church can be what it is. Hope you have a Bible with you this morning, and I want you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. Hopefully you came in. You got a bulletin on the back of that. There'll be some notes if you want to use those this morning as we study through God's Word together. But 1 Peter chapter 2 is what we're going to pick up on. We have been walking through this letter of 1 Peter on Sunday morning and looking at what Peter has to write to the church and what Peter has to say to the church regarding what the church is to be. And we've been looking at different explanations and different pictures of what Peter is saying that in light of the world around you that God still has a design God still has a plan and God still has a purpose for what the church is to be and I think it's very fitting for the days in which we're living there's a lot of questions about what we are to do and how we are to live and what we are to be and there's lots of pressures that are pulling at all directions saying well this is what the church should be and this is what the church has to be in order to be relevant or this is what we have to conform to or compromise to in order to be understood by the world. Or this is how we need to fit in a particular mold so that we are appeasing and pleasant to the world around us. And yet we come to the Word of God and the Word of God says, wrong. God has a plan. God has a design. God has a purpose. Regardless of the year, regardless of the society, regardless of the culture, God still has a plan for his church today. So we've been looking at First Peter, looking at what that plan is, and those teachings are for us today. So you're in First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 12. Just stay where you're at in First Peter 2. I just want to set the stage for what we're going to see in Luke chapter 12. We go all the way back to Jesus' earthly ministry, and Jesus is teaching his disciples a principle that we're going to see in First Peter chapter 2. So let me set the stage for you where we're going to be. Jesus, looking at his disciples, he tells them, and this is Luke chapter 12, and in verse 1 he says this, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. Right here in this passage, Jesus is telling them, he's telling his followers, watch out for the hypocrisy of the world. Watch out for this danger, this temptation that is around you to be duplicit. A life of duplicity. You say one thing and you do something else. Well, you're there in 1 Peter chapter 2, and Peter is going to continue this idea. He's going to pick back up on this, pick back up on the, pick back up on this idea as he's writing to the early church, and he's going to warn them. And in so many words, he's going to warn them against hypocrisy. He's going to warn them against duplicity. He's going to warn them of saying one thing and doing something else. We are right now surrounded by a culture, surrounded by an environment where the world says one thing but then does something else. We see that all throughout our political leaders, our governmental leaders, that they say, do this and don't do that. I was talking to Mr. Swartz just a few moments ago, who hails from California, and one of the big scandals out there was when their governor said one thing and did something else. And so we see this all in our politics, all in our society, all in our culture. But what Peter is going to tell us this morning is the world shouldn't see it in the church. And I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, we're going to have to admit that the world sees it in the life of the church too often. They see us 
say one thing when we're in here. They see us say one thing when we're all huddled up with other believers. And yet when they see us go out into this world and they see us walk out of this place, what we say in here is not what we do out there. And so what you see there in the top of the notes is I think the whole emphasis of these two verses is Paul or is Peter saying we are what we do. So it's not a matter of saying, well, I profess this or I claim this or I say this on social media or Facebook or you put on the big show when the preacher's around. What really makes a big difference is what you do. And I've said this to you before and I'll say this to you again. As your pastor, I'm not so much concerned with what comes out of your mouth as what God sees in your heart. And I'm not so much concerned with the presentation that you put on while you were in this place. I'm more worried about are you living faithfully to God? So you can come and you can say the right words and you can look the right part and you can put on the right face and you can act however you want to act when you're here and that is fine and that is great and I'm glad that you're doing it on a respectful fashion. But I am more concerned about the posture and the condition of your heart because that is going to determine what you do. So it's not a matter of what we say, it's a matter of what we do. So Peter is going to start. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. and We're going to be looking at just verse 11 and 12 this morning. And just kind of give you a snapshot of where we're going. What Peter is going to do, he's going to remind them of who they are. And then he's going to say, because of who you are, then this is what you do. And that's going to be verse 11. And then verse 12, he's going to reflip that. And he's going to say, because of who you are and what you do in verse 11. Then he gets to verse 12 and he says, this is what you are going to do because this is who you are. And you see that there in your notes that I've tried to outline it. But to remind us that Peter is saying, hey, we are what we do. And there's a watching world that sees duplicity and hypocrisy all around them. And they don't have any stomach for it. They don't have any desire for it. And then we have too many people outside of the church today that say they're not willing to come into the church because of the hypocrisy and the duplicity inside of the church. And there are people that have stories and stories and stories about this person acting this way inside the church and then acting some other way outside the church. And I'm going to tell you this morning that we can't go back on the timeline or the clock and change what happened yesterday. But brothers and sisters, from this day forth, we can make sure that we are the kind of believers in Jesus Christ that act and do the same way that we talk and profess. And I think that's what Peter is trying to remind us of and exhort us to this morning. He starts there in verse 11 by the word beloved. Now your translation, your English translation may use a different word there, but the idea of beloved is an affectionate term. So when he comes in here, what David said this morning, stomp on your toes and climb up your leg. I think he kind of, I think that's what you said. I think it was a misquote, but, but, what he, but you know, the idea that sometime Adam Carter accused me yesterday during the men's breakfast. We had 55 bodies here yesterday for men's breakfast. <laughs> That is wonderful. And, and it's not just all people from First Baptist. We had men throughout the community that were here. And, and it is such a wonderful time. It's the first morning, first men's breakfast we've had since I've been here that we ate all the biscuits. We didn't have a single biscuit left, did we, Van? Now, I had to go around and I had to hassle people to eat more biscuits. I, I know that I had to sell like a carny, but it's one of those things that I, it is such a blessing. We had, we had 55 bodies here for breakfast. Uh, totally, totally different tangent. Back to the story. So Adam, as he was speaking yesterday, he kind of accused me of uh, stomping on some toes. And so when Peter comes in this text, what Peter's going to do, he's going he's to get to this toe stomping part. But he's going to start by saying, I love you, <laughs> beloved, friend, sister, brother, 
sweet people, and then he gets on to what needs to be said. So in the spirit of Peter, beloved, sweet people, loved by God, and he goes on there in verse 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Four statements that Peter makes about the believers here in this text. He talks about who they are. If you look back up there in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you, and then he uses two words. He talks about them being a sojourner, and he talks about them being an exile. If you're to look it up and what those words mean, you're going to find a common synonym for both of those words and that is alien. What Peter is saying is that we are aliens. You think about the idea of an alien. An alien is something that is not from this world. It is not something that is part of this world. An alien is from a far distant galaxy in a far time, time away. You have all these ideas, these green people walking around, speaking different languages, doing crazy things to people, especially the, the, the the certain individuals that just fit the part. That then they get interviewed on television having had all this stuff done, being abducted by aliens. You know the characteristics. You know the stereotype. But the idea that Peter comes in and he says, we are to be aliens. He talks about being a sojourner. Now what is a sojourner? A sojourner is a foreigner living away from home. There's a typo there in your notes, but it's a foreigner living away from home. A sojourner was not someone that was taken against their will. It's not someone that was a captive or some type of a, a, a detainee. A sojourner was somebody that got up and said, hey, I'm going to sojourn with those people. An exile was somebody that was banished from where they were supposed to be. Or they were kicked out from where they were supposed to be. They were, they were a temporary resident in a distant land. So Peter comes in and he says, I want to remind you of who you are. And for all of the believers in this room this morning, I want to remind you that what Peter is saying to us is while we might be presently in Wilson, Oklahoma, in the United States of America, while you may have a residence, you may have a mailing address, you might have a physical address, you might have a hometown, you might have a place that you call home where you lay your head. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, Peter reminds you that that is not your home. That every single one of us that are followers in Jesus Christ are aliens in this world. So therefore, we shouldn't feel comfortable or settled in this world. We've moved a lot of times, Jalen and I have during the course of the life that God has led us in, we've moved quite a few times. In fact, in the first 10 years of marriage, we moved over five times. We moved from place to place to place. And you would get into a place, man, you just wanted to feel like home. And so you had to get your pictures up on the wall. And you had to get the furniture just right. And you had to get all these things settled just so it felt like home. When we, when we moved up here, we woke up at our house in Hilton. We woke up that morning and then the army showed up. They loaded up all of our possessions. We drove to Wilson. There was an army waiting to unload of our possessions here in Wilson. And so I woke up in one house and I went to sleep in another house. But you know, it took a while for that house to feel like home. 
took a while to get settled in. If you've been into a new place or, or moved, you understand how sometimes it takes a little while to get comfortable or settled. What Peter is telling us is as Christians and believers in this world, in this world, we should never feel completely comfortable. We should never feel completely settled. We should never feel like everything is as it should be because he tells us we are sojourners and exiles. We are to be different. We are set apart. We are not of this world. So he says that's who you are. That's who we are. We're aliens. We're aliens in a foreign world. So then what is it that we do? Well, verse 11, he tells us, since we are aliens and exiles, we abstain. Now, abstain is a word that, has, abstain, abstain is a word that hasn't been used as often as it used to be. But abstain is just simply to mean to avoid or to keep from, to be distant from something. If you abstain, you get as far away from it as possible. I have tried to encourage you that because God cursed them, then I feel like they're cursed. And so I abstain from snakes. Why? Because God abstains from snakes and I want to be like God. So I just stay as far away from snakes as humanly possible. But what here is Peter talking about? Peter is saying that we're not to abstain from snakes. He doesn't talk about that. He says to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, what Peter is saying is in this world that you're living and in this world that you're an alien in, there's going to be all kinds of temptations. There's going to be all kinds of allurements. There's going to be all kinds of things sneaking around the corner and saying, here, come here, come here, come here. You want to try this. You want to use this. You want to enjoy this. You want to watch this. You want to listen to this. You want to participate in this. You want to laugh at this. You want to possess this. You want to use this. All these these allurements and the passions of the flesh. Why you hear some people say, well, you know what? I just don't feel like that. Or I just don't think so in my heart. Or, you know, I'm a pretty a pretty knowledgeable discerning person I just don't know I'm going to tell you that your flesh lies to you my flesh on a regular basis says one more bite won't hurt my flesh on a regular basis says well you can start that exercise tomorrow My flesh is constantly lying to me. My emotions lie to me. My feelings lie to me. What is it that we trust? What is it that we hold on to? We hold on to the Word of God. And the Word of God teaches us that there is a constant battle raging in the life of the believer. And that is the battle between the spirit and the flesh. In the life of the believer, you have a battle going on with inside of you. The battle between the spirit and the flesh. And the spirit, you're, you're supposed to be led by the spirit, following the spirit. But the flesh is always there trying to lure you away. And our flesh desires sin. That's what he talks about in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What, what Paul is writing there in 1 Corinthians is that this war going on between the passions of the spirit and the passions of the flesh is a war between what is right and what is wrong. And so Peter reminds us that as exiles, as aliens, as sojourners in this world, we to abstain from the things that God calls sin. Now that is a radical idea in this world we're living in. Because the society around us tries to condition us to say, well, you know what, you can decide what is right and wrong. And you can decide how much of wrong is too wrong. And you get to decide on if you're old enough to be able to handle that kind of wrong or if they're too young to handle that kind of wrong. So you have people that have ratings on television shows. 
And so you'll get somebody that will say, you know what, it is inappropriate for my five-year-old to watch this on television, but I'm 35, so I can watch it with no problem. If it's sin for a five-year-old, it's sin for a 35-year-old. Well, you know, I can listen to this kind of music, and this kind of music won't affect me. I'm telling you, anything that we listen to affects us. Well, I can engage in this kind of activity and it won't bother me. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning that Peter says abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from those things that desire to get you to move away from God. Abstain from the things that wage war against your soul. What do you mean wage war against my soul? Sin is a distraction to your soul. So anything that is desiring for you to sin is waging war against your soul. So see, this isn't a personal thing. There are some people that got up this morning that said, you know what, I should go to church this morning. And then they had a whole list of reasons and excuses why they're not going to come to church. And then they decided, well, I'm not going to come to church because of my justified reasons. And they're not at church this morning. And somebody could say, well, Spence, they don't like you. You know what, this isn't personal. It's because they're having a war that's raging in their soul. And brothers and sisters, every single day, you and I wake up in a battle. We wake up in a war zone. We wake up having the spirit and the flesh inside of us fighting for our attention, fighting for our devotion, fighting for our priorities, fighting for our times. And we have to decide on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, will I abstain or will I give in? And Peter says it's not a decision. It's a choice. Because you are aliens, therefore you abstain. And that's a dangerous subject in the church and world today. Because nobody wants to get up and say you're wrong. Nobody wants to get up and rail against sin. Nobody wants to get up and draw a line of sanctification. Nobody wants to get up and say, well, this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. Everybody wants to come into church and they want to feel encouraged they want to feel good about themselves they want to feel like they're doing a good job and they are being improved upon and no one wants to come to church and be told how wrong you are and how bad of a person you are and how far you've missed the point and yet when we come to God's word God's word says that there is a very clear distinction that God has made either we're going to follow him in faithfulness or we're going to rebel against him in sin so the question comes down to you and I in this room this morning are we abstaining from the things that God tells us to abstain from? So in verse 11, Peter, Peter gives us this picture because Peter realizes that there was far too many people in the church back then and far too many people in the church today that they come in and they say, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm a sojourner. Yes, I'm an, I'm an exile. Yes, I'm an alien. But then I go out and I participate in all the same things that the world participates that God calls sin. That is being duplicit. You're being a hypocrite. And it is not a matter of being a faithful witness to God. It's saying to the world, you know what? God says this, but I don't fear God as much as I fear this world. So I'm going to follow the world instead of follow after God. So he says we are aliens. And because we're aliens, we abstain. It's We are what we do. So we abstain from the sins and the passions of the flesh and the things of this world that draw us away from God because we know that we're not in We're not of this world. So then he goes on in verse 12. Because I can tell you're so impressed with that idea. He goes on in verse 12 and he goes on and says, well, this is what you do because of who you are. He says, what we do then is that we live 
Right. I realize that's not great English, but it's just the, the, the summation of what he tries to get at. Look at verse 12. He says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. What does that mean to keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable? What is he trying to refer there? Because you know what? You look up in the phone book for Wilson, you're not going to find a whole category of Gentiles. You're not going to find a whole classification of who is Gentile. So what is he referring to? He's referring to, in that setting, all the people that weren't Jews. So anybody that wasn't in the synagogue, anybody that wasn't ethnically or genetically Jewish, everybody else was considered Gentiles. And so maybe let's translate it into the world we're living in. You have saved and you have lost people. You have people that are in the church and out of the church. So he would say that you want to live an honorable life before the Gentiles. So who in this setting would be Gentiles? Anybody in this world. Every person you see when you go to Bess. Every person you see when you go to Dollar General. Every person you see when you go to Walmart. All the friends that you have on Facebook. All the co-workers that you work with. All your, your employers. All your family and friends. All the people for you students that you're in school with. Everybody will be considered part of that Gentile. In fact, all of us, ethnically speaking, in the life of the New Testament, all of us in this room are actually Gentiles. I think, I don't think there's any ethnic Jews in here this morning. But he's saying, in other words, he is saying we need to live such a life that there is no question about who we belong to. So he says we live a right life. He says, verse 12, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. Now what is that conduct he's referring to? He's talking about our behavior, our conversations, our our actions, and our witness. He's saying make sure that you're doing the things that is considered to be by the world living for God. In other words, live a life that honors God. Now notice he doesn't qualify it with a location. He doesn't say live a life that honors God at church. Or live a life that honors God on Sunday. He doesn't say live a life that honors God when other church people are around. He doesn't say live a life that honors God when other people are watching. He doesn't say live a life that honors God When the preacher's around, he says, live a life so that anybody that is watching would think and have the opinion that your conduct is honorable. Which means, men, it's every moment of our lives. It's in our personal walk with our Lord and Savior, and it's the way that we lead our marriages and our homes. The way that we lead our children, the way that we come and we serve in the life of the church, the way that we work in our workplace environment. When you go to work, you're not just an employee that performs a service for your company. You are a representative of the kingdom of God. And when you go out in the community, you are not just Joe Schmo, anonymous Joe Schmo, and going around. You are a representative of God. And people are looking at you, and people are noticing your conduct. People are noticing your actions. People are noticing the things you say, the things you do. People are always watching to see what kind of person is this. Because I believe, more so than we realize, the world is watching to say, I want to see the hypocrisy. I want to see the duplicity. So therefore, I have grounds to say, see, that's why it's not real. That's why I'm not going to follow it. Because Joe Schmo over there says this thing, but does something different and we wonder why we are not reaching the people like we want to because the people are seeing by people are seeing our actions but they before they're hearing our words I really enjoy basketball 
We lived down in Hilton. I'd go to the high school basketball games and I didn't have a kid playing. But there were some young ladies in the church that played and so I'd go to support them. And I think it's a genetic thing on my part being a McConnell, but I like to talk. And I think I'm right a lot more than I really am. You can ask Jaylene about that. And so we get these basketball games. And I know these refs had a lot of training, but their eyesight was really poor. And they were always, they were always biased against the visiting team. And I would get there and I'd be in the stands and a call would be missed. Or a call would be made that I didn't agree with. And I feel like it is a spectator's responsibility to feedback. To provide instant feedback on the way the game is being played out. So I found myself at a couple of games being louder than I should. And yes, I had reasons. Yes, they were wrong. Yes, I was right. Yes, they needed to hear about it. Yes, other people in the stands agreed with me. Yes, I was never vulgar. I was never derogatory. No, I never belittled them or made fun of them. But yes, was I heard and was I known? Absolutely. And then I was listening to this preacher. And he got off on this subject about, do people know you more for your witness before God? or for your concerns in this world. And, and I started to wonder when I'm listening to this preacher, so that ref, what does that ref know me by? Does that ref know me by the obnoxious spectator that doesn't ever think he does anything right, or does that ref know me by somebody that points to Jesus? And I'll tell you, I shut my mouth at the games. Because I didn't know how to scream, Jesus loves you, and you got the call wrong in the same sentence. <laughs> I, did, I couldn't figure out how to do it. I still haven't figured out how to do that. And one of these days, I'm going to figure it out and it's going to be wonderful because I'll be able to sit there and scream and tell them that Jesus loves them and they're wrong at the same time. And I'm working on that. But it's one of those things that when the world around you, we have to think about this. We have to think about what does the world hear? What does the world see? What, how does the world know us? Because there are people that know who you are that you have never spoken to, but they already have an opinion about you because of the way that you carry yourself, the conduct of your lives, the way you present yourself, and how you interact with other people. They already know about you. And so what Peter says here in this text in verse 12, he says, live right so that anybody, when they're looking at you, they know whose team you're on. In fact, he tells us in verse 12, he says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Now, some people go, oh, hold up, Spence, you mean so I can do everything right and people are still, gonna not, people are still not going to like me? Yes. <laughs> yes. You mean I can live right and they will still falsely accuse me? Yes. You mean I can live right and people are still going to malign me? Yes. You think I can, you mean I can live right and people are still going to misunderstand me. They are going to still misquote me. They are still going to take my words out of context and they are still going to seek to gossip and slander against me. Yes, 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 yes. Well, why? Because you're an alien. wonder how many aliens are in a different galaxy right now thinking, man, we're getting a short end of the stick on what these Americans think about us. Bubba did not give us a good light when he was interviewed by the news. 
You wonder how many aliens are out there wondering right now saying we are being misaligned. That's what Peter is trying to say. Peter is trying to say because you are different, people will treat you different. And he says, so this is what you do. You live right. Not because of the way the world treats you. Not because of the way the world accepts you. Not because of how easy it is or comfortable it is. You are living right. Why? He says at the last part of verse 12, why do we live right? Because we are living right testimonies. Why do we live right? Because we are living testimonies. He says that there in the last part of verse 12. He says that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. Now, let's start at the back and work our way backwards. In, work our way backwards. What's the day of visitation? The day of visitation is the coming of the Lord. It's just a, 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 a reference saying that Jesus is coming back. First, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about there's going to be the shout of the archangel, the, the cry of command, the, the trumpet will sound and the Lord will come by and we and the church will be caught up with him in the air. First Corinthians 15 talks about the same sort of thing. That, that moment of coming, that when Jesus is coming back, that day of visitation that is coming, that we are looking and being ready for when we realize that we will be called up to the Lord and that's good stuff. That's good stuff. And so he says, this day of visitation that is coming. So in light of that, you are living such a life. You are living such a life. Notice he says in verse 12, you are living such a life that the world may see your good deeds. It doesn't say that they're going to like you. It doesn't say they're always going to agree with you. It doesn't say that they're always going to think you're the coolest guy hippiest, hoppiest person. You're going to have the most influence on social media. Oh my goodness. You're going to have the most money. Everybody's going to know you. Everybody's going to fawn all over you. He doesn't say anything about that. He says when people see your good deeds, what happens? They glorify God. In other words, what Peter is saying is our lives are a reflection. When people look at your life, they shouldn't see you. They should see God in you. When people look at what you do, they shouldn't give you credit and give you glory for how awesome a person you are. They should give God credit and God glory because how awesome God is in you. When the world looks at the church, they shouldn't get excited because of some methodology or some type of a a speaker or some type of a a musical part. They shouldn't get excited about the education. They shouldn't get excited about the people that serve and the work in this church. When they look at this church, they should not see individual people. They should see Christ working in us. When they come to this church, they shouldn't see a bunch of individual faces or individual names. They should see a whole body of believers all coming together, making much of God. People see our values in one. What we do. It says, may see your good deeds and glorify God. Not hear your good works. Not hear your good presentation. Not hear your good claims. He says, see your good deeds and glorify God. Which means we are living testimony, Christians. We are living testimonies, brothers and sisters. We are living representatives of the kingdom of God. And we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis, what do people see in me? It doesn't matter what you want people to see in you. It doesn't matter what you think people see in you. It doesn't matter what you intend for people to see in you. What do people see in you? Peter comes into this text and he says, Church, be careful the hypocrisy. Be careful the duplicity. Be careful of saying one thing and doing something else. 
be careful because that will be rampant in the world and I think we're going to see it more and more in the life of this world. During our prayer time this morning at 9 o'clock, <coughs> Charles, Manis, uh, Charles alluded to the idea that this world is continually becoming stressful, filled with anxiety. There's all sorts of struggles and pulls back and forth in all these different directions. Right now, some of you were contemplating your employment. Because the different social and political situations are coming down the pipe. Some of you are considering medical needs, medical decisions. Some of these decisions aren't easy for any of us. The question comes, what am I going to do? Now, I know if you look ahead in the text, next week we're going to be in a really touchy subject talking about the authority of the world around us, but I'm going to tell you this morning that regardless of what your decision, regardless of what the choices that you have to face, or regardless of what kind of challenge you are dealing with at this present time, no matter what it is, God has given you a way that you can glorify Him in the midst of it. Fast 1 Corinthians tells us that. It reminds us that it doesn't matter the temptation given a way out. So that we might bring glory and honor to God. So I don't know what the specific circumstance or challenge or problem that you're dealing with. I don't know the stress that you're going through. I don't know the anxiety that you're being bombarded with. I don't know the challenges that you're having. The hurdles, the obstacles that you're facing. I can tell you this. That what Peter says is that when you know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of what this world is doing. It's a matter of what does God want me to do in this world. And because you're aliens, we abstain from the sin and the actions and the behaviors of the world. And because we're aliens, we then live right before our Heavenly Father because we know that we're living testimonies of who God is. The gospel message is, it, is so simple and yet it is so sweet. That because God know, God knows and God knew that we would sin, God sent His Son to live a sinless life. So that we might have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. Well, how does that work, Spence? Well, Jesus came. He lived lived that sinless life. And yet they crucified him. Not only did they speak bad about him. But they crucified him. Not for his sin. Not for his wrong. But they crucified him because the hatred of the world against somebody that was an alien in the world. So they crucified Jesus. And they put him in a tomb. And three days later he rose from the tomb defeating death making it possible to be the atonement for our sins. And because Jesus died on the cross to take the place of our sins, He died on the cross to take the penalty of my sin and from your sin. He died on the cross taking the place that we deserve. He died on that cross, rose from the grave, so therefore He is in that position. He has earned that right, so when we cry out to Him, we can be forgiven of our sins through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And when you make that decision to repent of your sin, confess your sin before Jesus and ask to be forgiven of your sin, the Bible tells us that you're given a new heart. There's a transformation that then takes place. And therefore you are no longer just like the rest of the world. You are now a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are now a testimony. You are now a reflection. You are now somebody that is living not for the temporalness of this world. You are somebody that is living for the eternality of heaven to come. And because of who you are, that changes what you do.
So how do we live this faithful testimony? How do we live what Peter is telling us here in verse 11 and verse 12? We we'll remind you just a couple of things and we'll be done. He, he reminds us first of all that this world is not your home. That this world is not your home. I realize that you have a home. I realize there's a place that you reside. I realize that you have your pictures and I realize that you have your, your, your pretties and I realize that you have your bedding and I realize that you have your furniture and I realize you have all your decor and I realize you have all these things that make it you and are unique to you and make it your home. But the Bible tells us that in the grand scheme of things and the whole picture from a million years, this is not your home. And yet how many of us spend our entire lives earning enough money to buy a home that we're going to live in for maybe 20 years and then die? We spend so much of our lives making a life, building a home for what? 25, 30 years? Peter says, why not invest in the things that are going to last 100, 200, 500 a thousand years from now. Well, Spence, what does that mean? Spence, what do you mean by invest in those kind of things? Yeah, invest in the souls of people. Because the only thing in this room right now that is still going to be in existence in a thousand years are the souls of people. So why not put as much effort as you do in building a home on this earth and making a home on this earth as you do in investing in the souls of people? So he says this world is not your home. Secondly, he reminds us that you are living for the flesh or for the spirit. You're living for one of the two. Well, how do I know which is which? Well, answer this. Are you living for faithfulness to God or are you living for the enjoyment of this world? He tells us right there in verse 11 that these passions of the flesh are waging war against our soul. We understand that the text very clearly tells us that there is this battle that is going on. So then the question is, is what are you living for? I know you can come in here and you can say, oh, well, Spence, I'm living for God. That's easy. But is that what you're doing? We are what we do. And this last one. Is God getting the glory? Is God getting the glory? How do I know if God's getting the glory or not? Well, who's the focus? Who's the center of attention? Who's the person that's getting the praise? Right now we're in this whole season of fall athletics. Football is the big thing in town. People talk football, 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 football. If you pay attention to football very much, and especially after you get after after high school and you get on the collegiate and the professional level, there's one main player that usually gets mentioned more on a football team than any other player, and that is the quarterback. I'm going to tell you, I got a little bit of a grudge against that because as a person that always slumped it out on the on the line, I kind of feel like we got cheated on the recognition. Because you know that pretty boy never would have gotten back to throw that pass if there hadn't been some lump on the front keeping the defense away from him. But yet, it never fails like the people that get all the attention, the people that get all the recognition are the quarterbacks. Now I realize they're having to, they're having to do a lot of work. I, I'm not saying that they're all sissies. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you that more often than not, they're the ones that get the most attention. And yet you can have 10 other guys on a field with one guy eating the praise. And you know those other ten guys? Most of the time they're just happy if they win. And they're content. Because they understand it's not about one person. 
It's about 11 people being successful. And when those 11 people buy into the idea that it's a team effort and a team sport and they are all successful when they are all successful together, then that is what creates a successful team. Yet you translate that into the church and we have too many people in the church today that are willing to be a part of the life and the service of the church as long as they get the attention. And nowhere do you see in scripture that this thing called team church is about one person in this room. This thing called team church is about one person and that is Jesus Christ. But you know, we will all succeed and we will all rise together and advance the kingdom of God and see people's lives transformed and we will see the name of Jesus Christ be proclaimed and be advanced in this community and in this state and in the world in which we're living in the time, the era that which we're in, when we all realize that what we're doing here is not about us. It's about Him. And when we commit and pledge our lives live for the glory of God versus the glory of ourselves. So where are you at this morning? What is true about you today? You bow your heads with me.